greenwashing, you know, undermines real progress, real movement towards the goal that it appears to represent. And that's exactly what autonomy is doing. That's why, like I said, it's anti-autonomy because it's not getting us closer to safe, usable um, autonomy. Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the No Parking Podcast, um, secret operations at Argo AI, and um, a big fan of today's guest and topic. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, senior transportation reporter with TechCrunch. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. So we are going to talk to... I'm going to refer to her as world famous Liza Dixon, um, who is the, um, I want to say, uh, progenitor, uh, the mother and father of the term autonomous washing, which pulls together everything autonomous has been talking about for years. And she deserves the credit for giving it a name. Uh, and also the author of um, a thesis we're going to discuss about trust and automation. Um, Liza, welcome so much to the show. Thank you, Alex. It's Fantastic to be here. Well, let's let's just start, Liza. Why don't you just sort of give us a little bit of background on, on who you are and sort of how you got into to these topics? Okay, sure. So, um, yeah, my name is Liza Dixon. And, uh, yeah, I'm a PhD candidate now working in human-machine interaction in automated driving at Bosch. Um, prior to getting into the field of automation and vehicles, like, I came from a totally different place. Um, so I had a design bachelor's degree. I ended up working in um, advertising and marketing in the fine jewelry industry. And then I um, sort of pivoted and refocused on technology, which is just an area I've always been really fascinated by, you know, growing up, saving all of my old gadgets and toys. And um, after working in the fine jewelry industry, I sort of pivoted and I was looking for something different, something more meaningful to work on. And so uh, really liking technology, I decided to think about ways that I can make it work for people. And I uh, explored an opportunity to move to Germany and to study usability engineering here to get my master's. And I moved here in 2016 to do that. And kind of, yeah, during my time here, old past interests came together. Um, you know, I grew up surrounded by car culture, car, car people, going to car races, car shows, these things. So I've always appreciated cars from a like design and artistic standpoint and like an engineering marvel that comes together and just something you can have all of these experiences inside of that can take you places. And um, yeah, so just loving cars, loving technology, wanting to bring all of this together. And that's when, you know, it clicked in my head, okay, I need to look at vehicle automation, what this can do for uh, safety and what this can possibly offer us as a society and um, refocus how to make this work for people. So I went all in on this and I, um, for my master's thesis, I performed uh, an onward study of trust in advanced driver assistance systems where I basically got a group of naive users, put them in the vehicle and watched them use the technology. Um, and yeah, eventually uh, this led to a publication um, some speaking at conferences, and eventually in my PhD, which I'm now beginning with Bosch. So um, really winding path, but here I am. Can you tell us you know, what kind of car or cars you used for that study? Sure. And um, a little bit more about the research and the conclusions? Okay. For this study, I used a Mercedes-Benz uh, GLC 250, I think. And uh, this had a, the Distronic Plus system, um, all of the pre-safe features, all of those things. Um, and it was just, you know, strictly a partial automation vehicle, a level two system. And we took this car uh, on the Autobahn and in the country roads through construction zone settings, just a totally uncontrolled in the wild um, area. And when I was doing this, I was just observing the way people use the system. I was giving them basically very little instruction and um, making assessments of their trust kind of before they use the system, after they use the system, interviewing them, talking about their expectations of the technology, and then um, seeing how that experience changed their perceptions. Um, as part of that, I also recorded them with a camera. Uh, so I in sort of like post-analysis, ran this video footage through a facial emotion recognition um, algorithm that I had uh, put together with um, some colleague. And it was interesting to see like, okay, like 
if we can talk to people about how they feel about the technology in a qualitative way, how can we like add some quantitative aspect? How can we capture, you know, these nuances and these details of them interacting with the technology? And so um, I was able to capture some things there and sort of put together that uh, in the end, the drivers that reported a greater gain in trust in automation tended to display more of the emotion of happy that you could, you could really see this effect on their face. Um, and also the drivers who were tended to be more angry, um, had a, you know, a, a loss of trust in automation at the end. And, uh, the GLC, I guess it did, it, what was the generation of, uh, ADAS that it had? What does Mercedes call their system? Drive pilot? Distronic plus. The, the, the Distronic is the, that's the radar cruise control functionality, mm-hmm. so, but there also has lane keeping functionality as well. It, yes, it does have a steer. They call it steer assist. Yeah. I'm curious. So the people who are happy with the system, like, was there some correlation between their cognition and uh, like, did they understand what was happening? Were there people who, tr- were there people who trusted it without understanding what it was doing? We just kind of deferred to it. Absolutely. So when you look at trust and automation, like this body of research, because we are, we do really have quite a body of research that has emerged uh, on this topic over the years. Um, There are different things that we look at, like uh, propensity to trust, um, a, you know, faith in the developers, uh, understanding of the system, predictability. There's all these different factors that, you know, a model that basically forms somebody's idea of trust in specifically vehicle automation uh, and when it comes to that, there's different scales for technology acceptance. And these factors can also play in where you even have, um, at least in my study, there was a difference in um, ages. So the participants that were on the older end of the spectrum uh, tended to trust the vehicle less than the younger participants. Um, you know, some people, they uh, declared themselves dinosaurs when we were talking about technology and the, the way they tend to use technology. Um, there are also some people who at the end of the study, you know, after we parked and we had driven a car, you know, at high speed on a highway asked me afterwards if I had written the software for the vehicle. So, you know, it was really, it was a really a range of people. And, um, whenever you're looking at people interacting with technology and any kind of systems, there's huge cultural aspects here too. I think, uh, Americans, uh, are different when it comes to automation, what the risks they're willing to take, the way they even interact with it in their very first uh, first experiential drive. Um, it's, there are a lot of, you know, it, it, people are complicated and you give them a complicated piece of technology and interesting things are going to happen. So. So do you think that if you were to take exactly what you did in Germany and then try to duplicate it here in the U.S. that you come up with wildly different findings or it would be somewhat close with a few differences? I think, you know, when you're talking about German Germans versus Americans, it's still Western culture. So I think it'd be on the side of like, okay, it's some differences, but mostly the same. If we went to Japan, if we went to somewhere else, I think this would really shift and change. Tell us more about that. Because it sounds like that, the, I mean, it sounds like the same vehicle with the same hardware and software might have to calibrate, I guess, the boundaries of, auto, of the partial automation differently based on the market in order to increase adoption? Yeah, based on the market. And I mean, when, even when you're talking about like the interface that you're using and like iconography, like things need to be uh, internationalized and they need to be um, at times, you know, really adjusted to the culture that they're going to be deployed in. You can't necessarily, um, you know, make one size fits all, especially when it comes to the icons that are used. Some of the icons that I've seen that are supposed to represent hands-on or hands-off, they're very hard to tell tell what they're supposed to indicate. I mean, this really is something that, um, you know, in a perfect world would require everybody to read the manual. And we know that that's never going to happen. So, yeah. So did you, when you were doing this study, did you do repeated drives or this was really based on like a singular drive with each individual? It was based on a singular drive with each individual. Mm-hmm. So... Basically, my time with this vehicle was limited to a period of two weeks. I got it on loan from a dealership here. Um, So they, yeah, they gave it to me and said, okay, for science, we'll let you have this. And, you know, you can work with it as a student. So, um, yeah, we we just did uh, 
the drive session was about an hour and a half. Um, the first 15 minutes were them watching a brief video of Mercedes-Benz content about what the system can do. And then, um, yeah, some short interview, some questionnaires. Then they got the drive for one hour in different settings. And that was it. So there wasn't a repeated effect. I mean, there are different studies that do that, that take people over time. Um, this is really valuable as well, because what we find is, yeah, more experience with automation does tend to lead to more trust until, of course, there's an incident, in which case you kind of go back and you need to build that trust up again over time. Does any manufacturer offer any form of um, in-vehicle education or even an on-screen manual or anything which educates as to how their ADAS works? Because I, I spent some time in a Mercedes E-Class in like 2016, 17, mm-hmm. which had what they claimed to be the best ADAS Mercedes offered. And it was impenetrable. Um, there was a lane keeping assistance system, which was mm-hmm. separate from, it was, which was separate from active steering. Mm-hmm. And I could not understand. I could never really tell which of the systems was active yes. at which time. Yeah. And I th- that really made me nervous. Mm-hmm. So who offers any kind of ed- in-vehicle education? That's a, that's a great question, and I, I do not know the answer. But that's, it's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, you know, it, it's difficult because, like, what, what is the right way to educate someone about this technology? Is it to, to put a dialog box on a tiny, you know, uh, well, they're getting bigger, these huge touch screens we know in, in the vehicles, but on, you know, a screen in a car where you just hit okay, install the software, next, next, next. You know, nobody, we're so conditioned not to read these agreements that we click every day online, all of these things. And I, I don't know what the right, exactly what the right method of training is. Certainly having something there for the legal uh, legal reasons makes sense. I, I understand why the vehicle um, manufacturers are doing this, but there's, there's so much going on before someone even gets near a vehicle to use it, to drive it, that's contributing to their understanding about what these systems do and how they work, that um, it's, it's, it's uh, not optimal to have, yeah, just a box of text trying to tell you how to drive with something. And what you mentioned before is something that is a huge issue, is, which is, um, yeah, the sy- system state awareness. So if you have, for example, adaptive cruise control on, Sometimes that steer assist goes on and off based on what it can see, you know, every second, whether, you know, there's the lane markings, the pain is a little worn off. It's kind of like almost flickering like a candle. And so to not know who's steering the car and having that change every couple seconds almost is um, is really a, ch- a challenge. And that's why, again, this requires a full monitoring, these level two systems. Another question. Um, you stated that there should be some, I think, standardization of iconography across markets um, about the different functionalities. So I see there's some overlapping commonality between, say, the Mercedes uh, display, mm-hmm. um, which shows – I, I would hate to call it situational awareness because it's fairly primitive. But in yeah, – I think even the pictures of the latest Mercedes S-Class show the same iconography mm-hmm. and situational display as a three or four year old Mercedes E-Class. So you have a fixed pair of lane lines, Mm -hmm. which either uh, glow green to indicate that the forward facing camera sees them, but it doesn't show whether the vehicle is closer to one or the other. It's just a centered vehicle icon and these lane lines. And then then um, forward of your vehicle icon in a Mercedes, you have whether or not there's a vehicle in front of you, but it doesn't indicate relative distance the size of the forward the vehicle in front of you, the icon doesn't change. Now, compare all that. Now, I find that terrible and, and suboptimal. Compare that to a Tesla, which has probably the best situational awareness display, but it seems like that it seems so good, I think might introduce a different set of risks. Of course. In that a Tesla driver like myself becomes overconfident mm-hmm. in what appears to be the improved accuracy of the Tesla display. And then I trust the system based not on what I observe externally, but based on what I think the system sees. Right. So what is, is is there research from anyone about what the, should there be any situational awareness for the driver or user of ADAS? I think the answer is yes. It's just about when, how, why, where is it shown? I mean, there are, um, 
you have, there's, uh, in the research, there's been identified two different groups of people. So you have these high information preference people who want to see all the details all the time, everything that's happening with the vehicle. And then you have these um, low information preference individuals who want to see a different type of display. So there are a lot of things that, um, yeah, individual preferences that make designing a, a singular system really challenging. Um, and I think it's a question of when you're making these displays, you, you, you realize that everything you add is a liability. Everything you take out is a liability. So you're always trying to find the middle ground. And there is, at some point, you have to finish and put put a design out and um, have it, you know, have evidence to support that it is safe and verified and the best that it can be. But it's, yeah, it's, it's design. So it's always going to be subjective. And it's always going to have uh, its pros and cons. It's, it's kind of like art in a way. You're going to have these different interpretations of, of, of the solution. Alex, I'd like to quibble with your, the one point that you just made, which was that you thought that Tesla's situational awareness was good. Because I will say that the Tesla that's sitting in my driveway right now, which is really yours, uh, and when I drive it, if I'm looking at, let's say, even if I'm at a stoplight and I see uh, projected, it should show where other vehicles are. That isn't always accurate. So if I were to be paying attention to that, that would give me less trust. When I see a truck come off and on the screen several times or disappear or something reappear. Now, it might be better than what other systems have, but it's by no sense like infallible. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. My observation, and Liza, I assume you've driven a Tesla at this point. You've spent some time. No, I haven't, actually. I haven't. Really? Yeah. Um, Is that because I'm aware of what Tesla's hardware is, and I'm aware of its general, generally what its performance envelope is for its 8S suite, I... I trust the display more in scenarios mm-hmm. where I know that I am way inside of its limitations. And yeah. so I find that its display to be extraordinarily helpful, not for um, not, not not necessarily when autopilot's engaged, but most helpful when it's not engaged. And I'll give you an example. Uh, and I wish this tool was available on every car. If I am um, on the, a highway, and it's a three-lane highway, and there's mm-hmm. a truck in the center lane, um, the display, not always, but will often show me whether there's a vehicle on the far side of the truck across two lanes, which is a very nice thing to know, um, especially if you're planning a pass or need to get to an exit. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, someone who trusts it and not, is not aware of its blind spots to the rear due to the absence of radar could get killed as a result. Uh, and that's... Uh, that's why I was curious, and I'm fascinated uh, to hear your point of view on the liability of removing data and and also adding data. Um, yeah. Uh, what is your posi- uh, point of view on driver monitoring systems? Because you you mentioned in your study that you used a mixed methods approach using facial emotion recognition, which sounds a bit like what Affectiva does. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have uh, Do you have a point of view on different types of camera based DMSs mm-hmm. and which might optimal? Yeah, so I'm definitely all for driver monitoring systems. I think they're really honestly critical at level two automation, level three automation. They they should be in every system um, on the road. That's my opinion. Um, now, when it comes to these different monitoring tools, like when you talk about something like Effectiva or something that I did in my study, like facial emotion recognition is something different. So this is more for developers. This is more for the research side of things. Um, facial emotion recognition specifically doesn't really serve the consumer in terms of a DMS because you have, uh, when you're driving a car, you're doing all kinds of things. You know, you're talking about what you did last weekend. You're laughing about something, you know, in the past or in the future. And it's not really the emotional state aspect isn't really relevant for uh, consumer everyday driving. Now, knowing someone's gaze, their head position and uh, indicators of attention and focus, um, being sure that they're not distracted or involved in other, you know, non-driving related tasks when they're supposed to be monitoring. This is critical. And this is something, like I said, that belongs in every, truly every level two and level three system should have this. 
Um, this is sort of the, I see a driver monitoring system as the last, um, the last tool we have for calibrating trust to make sure that the trust is actually appropriate, that the monitoring is sufficient, that um, the system is being used properly. It's the fallback that is needed because an automated system um, in, that knows the state of the user is much more better able to yeah, support them in the tasks that it's being used for. So it's that exchange between the system and the human that you don't want to break that link. That's really essential. Um, and it couldn't be more essential in any level than partial and conditional automation. This is one more question. So inside the EMS, the camera-based EMS sector, mm -hmm. there yeah. are competitors. Are there profound differences in their approaches in terms of how they measure cognition, pose, eye tracking? Um, is there dis disagreement among them or differences of accuracy? I can speak more to the differences between the different uh, driver monitoring system approaches, more so than like the specifics of the eye tracker or the head position. I mean, they're using infrared cameras, they're using um, different things to gauge this, but I don't know that there's a huge difference between the makes and yeah. Yeah. So I'd be cautious to, to comment on that. But I think, you know, when you look at something like uh, torque sensors or capacitive sensors or um, head position, eye trackers, there's a huge, there's oceans between these things. Um, so, yeah. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So you've, you've been talking a lot about trust and like a mm -hmm. lot of the work that you've done has, has centered around this issue of trust between the human and the, um, and the automation. Um, and you know, you, you actually have a great graphic in your, in your Atana washing paper um, that sort of shows, you know, why this is sort of so challenging, which mm -hmm. is that there's sort of a, um, a, a sweet spot where the level of trust has to be aligned with the capabilities of the, of the system. Exactly. So with that in mind, like, why is why is Atana washing? Well, first of all, I guess maybe just explain what Atana washing is, but but then maybe sort of how what why is it so important? Um, and why does it affect trust? Okay, so Atana washing, in short, is making an automated system appear to be more capable than it really is. That is to you know uh, overstate its capabilities and to understate the level of human supervision uh, at the same time. So. Atana washing is, is uh, something that happens um, usually before someone ever interacts with uh, vehicle automation. And it, it, it starts to build their idea of their, their mental model of what this system does and how it can serve them. And so by the time they come to the technology, um, they're already in a position that is not of uh, not, not, not considering necessarily the two most important things they need to know, which is one, uh, do I have to monitor the system? And two, what are the limitations of the system? And a ton of washing is not supportive of either of those two basic fundamental things that just your average everyday person needs to know. So when they're getting in this vehicle that they've heard is self-driving and they're told that, oh, it's self-driving, but then in a whisper, but you have to keep watching. You have to pay attention. This is not the foot we want to start off on. So um, right away, they're put into a position where they're more likely to overtrust the system, which we call inappropriate reliance. Um, this overtrust leads to misuse, which then can, of course, increase the risk for accident and all kinds of problems. Um, of course, you know, you do want them to have a certain level of confidence in the system, because if they 
under they're under trusting of the system that's likely to lead to misuse or excuse me disuse which we definitely don't want either because you know the the ways that these systems can be helpful and supportive and improve safety when they're used properly um, we want that benefit to be realized and certainly all of the money and time we're investing in making these things we want them to be to be used yeah so so the the relationship between your between your research and this atana washington paper is is pretty pretty clear uh what sort of what was the the thing that sort of you know made that because what i what i love about atana washing is you know i mean as you say there's there's literally decades and decades of research um, on in this sort of human automation interaction. I was actually, someone on, on Twitter shared something the other day, I can't remember who, uh, it was a study from 1940 mm-hmm. uh, about, about you know, over-reliance on, on partial automation, uh, not in the, the car context, obviously, but but still, there's a lot mm-hmm. of research, but, but um, you know, and, and with my PAVE hat on, like, it's it, one of the really frustrating parts is that because these issues are so complex, especially if you don't have hands-on experience with some of these systems, it's very hard to communicate mm-hmm. um, this stuff and why it matters. And, and what I love about Atana washing is that you've just crystallized this giant, complex problem space or like a big, a big issue within a big, complex pro- uh, problem space into one word. And like as a writer, I find that amazing. Um, and as a as an uh, automated, you know, vehicle education professional professional that's a thing uh <laughs> uh semi-professional new title uh, yeah <laughs> uh, you know it's really amazing so i, I, I want to know like how what was the was there a moment where this like you're like yes a ton of washing and and what prompted that or or was it a bunch of things yes there was a moment and it was me responding to one of alex's tweets wow. casually one night uh, you know on a tuesday So it was, yeah, it was just like a totally random thing. I mean, I'm kind of prone to like making up words. I just think that, I don't know, it's just more fun to talk that way when you can say something like vaguely relatable and someone gets it. It's kind of like a little, it's fun. So um, yeah, so I basically responded to a tweet to Alex and he was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What's that word? And then he started, you know, tweeting it. And I was like, oh yeah, maybe this is something, you know? And so uh yeah, I sat down and I wrote like a quick medium post about it. I got it out like the next day or something. And um, yeah, spent, it, and it marinated for a while, this idea and what it could be. Um, it was really about uh, nine months before I started writing that paper, like seriously putting this into like something. Because after that moment happened where there, it became, okay, there's like this word, this concept. Then over time, I realized, okay, wait a minute. There's like this huge gap between academic research, journalism, and the industry. Like there's this huge area of open space and this lack of community. Well, it's, you know, it's this like false idea that there's communication, but there's really like, there's some, some problems and some things that just aren't really coming together. And I felt like just standing there watching this is like, okay, so this, this kind of needs to turn into something more. Like, let me see what I can do if I just, you know, sit down and really think about this. And so, yeah, basically that's what I did. Um, sat down for about a month and just focused on this topic and just dug in and um, wrote this paper and decided to see if I could get it published, uh, which was uh, also a adventure because, um, yeah, I'm completely independent. I'm not employed at, at the time by, you know, anyone or any, certainly no automaker. So I was, uh, yeah, on my own. And so in, in a way, it was a great position to be in to talk about something which, uh, is seen by consumers as controversial, um, by people who develop and test and actually work on this technology. There is absolutely nothing controversial about Atana washing. It's very clear that this is uh, a problem. And uh, so, yeah, so then went on that path of yeah getting it peer-reviewed, which was interesting. Um, I went through two rounds of peer reviews, which is unusual. You usually just have one and you get rejected or, you know, get asked to fix a few things and you get accepted. So, um, yeah. And it's not at all a traditional scientific paper by any means. It's a conceptual paper. So I don't have, you know, this robust study of, you know, a hundred people that I did these things with. I'm trying to, through bits and pieces, formulate some type of concept that can, yeah, like you said, be reduced to letters in one word that can sort of accelerate our discussion because I'm like, I, Okay, the word atana washing, yes, but I didn't create this. I mean, so many people have been talking about this problem way longer than I have. It's just something that um, 
a frustration that I wanted to see it move along quicker. And that's really the way you pro- you make progress, you make evolution, you make things move quicker as you get tools like words like this that can help reduce, you know, 10 paragraphs into a word that everybody can kind of gain some consensus on. So beyond the con- conceptual paper, do you want to then build off of this and actually then take it even a step further? Or do you think that the job of the paper is done and now you're sort of focused on, you know, your PhD and things like that? I mean, it, 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 is there an opportunity to actually do really a hands-on, robust study, sort of what you did before, but really building off of that? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good question. Uh, it's something I would be open to. Um, the topic of my PhD is a little bit different. So this is, um, a ton of washing would be looking at, you, you know, a media marketing effect. And, um, there is some research already in this area where, uh, gosh, I forget the name of the study, but they, they took different participants and educated them differently. So basically, you know, made the system sound more capable and, uh, and with one group of participants and, you know, gave them different levels of education to see how that affected the way they interacted with the system. And um, it definitely does affect the way they interact with the system. So in some ways, that's been touched on in the research, certainly can always be expanded. But um, yeah, in my case, my topic of the PhD will be more focused on, you know, how do I calibrate trust with a human machine and interaction design and the interface? Like, how can I assure that this uh, appropriate balance is struck? Right. So now you're moving and building on that. Mm -hmm. So the obvious company that comes to mind when the Atana washing term is used is Tesla. Mercedes Benz. (laughs) Tesla. But before we jump into Tesla, because there's always plenty to talk about, I'm wondering if there are other, um, if you've found that if you, once you put Tesla aside, is is the problem pervasive throughout the industry or is it just one or two companies that are so well known that it all boils down to, you know, and hones in on these two companies? Well, I think a ton of washing definitely happens on a spectrum. There's like light and then extreme and then, you know, everything in between. So I think, yeah, certainly as goes without saying Tesla's in the extreme category, they're often really pushing this to the limits. And as we saw with the ruling today in Germany, um, there are actually some consequences maybe around the corner uh, for this. So I think, um, and you know, Alex mentioned, mentioned something about Mercedes-Benz and um, back when they launched the E-Class in 2016, they did have a, um, a moment where they were describing their system as self-driving and they did have um, the hammer come down a bit on this. And they quickly, what's interesting is the reaction was very different. So very quickly they pulled these ads and they, um, they stopped. And since then, I think they've been a lot more cautious with their language. Um, because of that experience, I think they did kind of straighten up a bit. Um, but I think like oftentimes I'll see people even using a ton of washing in a little bit of a different way. So whenever they, they see, um, even a company like Waymo or any one of the like self-driving software companies, these startups, they'll use the term Atana washing whenever they feel like they're just overhyping in general. So not necessarily when they're talking about like specifics of the system, like details, but just a general sense of hype around self-driving they're referring to as Atana washing. That's kind of interesting because in a way, the term that you um, invented coined um, (laughs) is now and, and you see this with terms all the time, right? Mm-hmm. It starts out with a specific use, yes, and then we'll adopt it and change it, and now start mm-hmm. applying to, applying it to all sorts of, you know, a shorthand to refer yeah. to, you know, the capability of other things, right? So, are are you okay with the morphing and change of this word, or do you want? Yeah. Do you think it should it stick within the confines of sort of the original idea? Yeah. Oh, I think after I published the paper, I mean, it's just, you know, it's not mine anymore. So it's out there and it's, uh, it will take its own form. Um, and it will be interesting to just to watch what happens because I think, yeah, once you push publish on something and you release it, it like any, um, I refer a lot to art or different things, but it's open to interpretation. There's the baseline, there's where it started. That's where's where it began. But uh, it can always evolve. And I think, you know, at the end of the paper, I mentioned something about how, okay, you know, now, you know, we're hyped up and we're focused on 
self-driving tech and vehicle automation and consumer vehicles. But at the same time, when we have uh, robotics, uh, maybe 10, 15 years from now changing and being advertised, you know, some robotic assistant in your home, perhaps these are also going to be a ton of washed. And I think, um, yeah, anywhere you're dealing with partially automated systems, especially uh, this is probably going to be uh, a risk, I guess, in the future. So, you know, generally speaking, at least in, in this country, right, we have sort of um, some some constitutional issues with government uh, regulating language or, or speech anyway. Mm-hmm. Speech. Um, uh, but of course, you know, in, in most countries there are also, you know, rules against deceptive advertising and things like that. Um, and so, you know, in, in, we've seen sort of a, an interesting situation where in the Mercedes case, Mm-hmm. Um, the FTC actually ended up intervening yeah. at the request of some consumer groups. To be clear, let's just, let's just quote the ad. The ad was in the yes. back cover of Wired magazine. I still have the print edition. And the ad said, introducing a self-driving car from a self-driven company. From a very self-driven company. <laughs> Um, and then, and then, as you mentioned too, just today, and it's amazing the, the happy coincidence of, of getting to talk to you today, um, you know, in Germany, there was this this court ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you see some regulatory responses from the sort of a, a, a truth and advertising kind of perspective. You have mm-hmm. um, also sort of a, a, a competition authority, which we don't really have in the U.S., uh, taking Tesla to court over, um, you know, the language it was using, um, you know, Tesla Germany. Um but th- that doesn't that doesn't suggest sort of like this is the right way to do this, right? It's, it, it seems like sort of governments and and civil society in a way are are having to find different tools. Do you have a sense of of what sort of the best way to to go about uh, dealing with this problem is? Is there a right way or wrong way? Or yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's open for a lot of opinions. I mean, we need a solution here, and I think you mentioned before the Federal Trade Commission um, in the FTC Act. Act in Section 5, there's a, uh, a section that's about uh, unfair and deceptive advertising. And in this section, it specifically says that you cannot use fine print to clarify misleading headlines. And this is something that, you know, far beyond vehicle automation is happening all the time. And it's just that it's not something that uh, is so often enforced. Like, again, like you said, like we have uh, in this country, uh, in the US, a a sense of freedom of speech. Like, I want to say this about this thing. And so I can. And um, there is a lot of sensitivity around that. And I think, yeah, that's one of the reasons that um, things are gotten away with. Uh, But um, when we talk about vocabulary or ways we should be talking about the technology, you know, there's been suggestions by groups like AAA. Um, I think PAVE has also put out some things regarding the way we should be talking about the technology, the AP style book. Uh, There are incremental improvements happening here and there because we're realizing, you know, this could be this could be not good for all of us type of thing. Like when we have these problems, um, it's really I like to say that autonomous washing is anti-autonomy because if you really care about the future of this technology and okay, in its highest form, then you, you, you can't, you can't start off on that foot because when we have these types of problems, again, it just like condensates this dark cloud over the industry. You have people misusing the technology, negative headlines. It all feeds into this um, greater consciousness that we we really can't afford to have. Yeah, the the one other thing that's just really interesting about the regulatory responses that we have seen is that none of them, at least explicitly, seem to acknowledge the fact that this is a situation in which uh, using certain language can actually have life or death implications. Mm-hmm. And that to me right. is what makes this, you know, kind of yeah. the most important issue in this whole space. Right. Uh, you know, we, and there's tons of them as, as, as you know, most of our listeners know, you know, nomenclature, yeah. the, but it, every level. Yeah. But I think like, if you look at what's going on in the world in general with the COVID and everything, getting humans to draw a line between like a small action, like a word they use to like a life or death consequence, this is like, mental Olympics for the average person. Like this is not going to happen. Um, I think, yeah, it's wishful, but it's, it's, and you know, again, that's why it's so important to just be clear. And we, I think, you know, in some ways, everybody, when they got into this area, probably at one point, if they're honest with themselves, will admit they were super hyped, super excited. They went through a phase of like bright eyed and disillusioned ideas. 
And then, you know, this, yeah, trials of disillusionment comes through and all of that. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. And I think something else I've been thinking about lately too, is how just watching people, the way they behave with COVID and the way they're only able to monitor themselves for so long, only able to maintain a certain level of vigilance for so long. I mean, you can just observe these human psychological limitations that we have, you know, in a safety critical context that is everyday life right now and the way they behave and the risks that they take. It's, it's the same psychology that creates problems for us when we interact with technology because we are, yeah, we have our limitations. Um, I want to add something really quickly because it just so happens that Elon's tweeting about this right now. Um, so is he tweeting directly at Liza Dixon? Because let no. me tell you, <laughs> taking on a formidable no. foe. Um, basically, uh, he's responding to a tweet uh, from someone who says, "Ever notice how planes have autopilot, but they still have two human pilots?" Autopilot does not replace human operators. Instead, autopilot assists the operator's control of the vehicle, allowing the operator to focus on the broader aspects of operation. And Elon responds just now, Tesla autopilot was literally named after the term used in aviation. Also, what about Autobahn? Okay. (laughs) Respond. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Everything about the Autobahn is most exciting and most defined by manual driving and <laughs> all of that. So that's not, yeah, that's, I won't even go there. But um, as far as autopilot goes in planes, okay, I think you're, you're, first of all, you're not talking about your Aunt Mary, your Uncle Joe. These are highly trained experts that have spent hours and hours behind these machines. They know inside and out all of the error, error codes, all of the risk factors the very specific operational design domain, all of the limitations of the system are crystal clear to them. They're also, you know, aside from takeoff and landing up in the air without many uh, (laughs) types of interference, generally speaking. So when you're going to put someone who's not trained, who doesn't understand the level of monitoring that's needed necessarily, who doesn't know the limitations of the system, and you're going to allow that system to be activated in an urban setting, in a highway setting, just all over the place, wherever they want, without monitoring, you're going to hype it up. You can't, you really cannot compare this. I just don't see how this is comparable. It's convenient maybe to compare if you don't, uh, if you take it on a surface level. Um, But I think, yeah, if you were going to, you know, do some comprehension and some secondary thinking about what that means, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. The other thing which is funny about Elon defending autopilot as a term this way is that there are many different types of aviation autopilots. Mm-hmm. Like a very basic one, mechanical system, which is incapable of doing anything other than hold the plane straight and level. And then, uh, and then there are intermediate systems. And then you might get into say a very late model Boeing or Airbus, which has a, a level of functionality, which actually is separate from autopilot, which is called a, a, a traffic collision avoidance system, Okay, which, um, which is a whole different system. And so you can have an autopilot in a plane, which is not capable of avoiding a collision. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it that way, then Elon is making a very disingenuous argument at another level. So. But now you, now we know the roots were, you know, straight from aviation, which we've talked about a few times, Alex. Well, And, and one of the things that people don't mention too, it, it might not even be the auto part of autopilot that that's the issue. And again, this is one of the challenges with, with language and, you know, understanding what impact they have on, on our mental models, right? It, it's a very mm-hmm. difficult thing to measure. Um, but uh, AAA did a, a study. I don't think it was peer reviewed, um, but they, they did a study in uh, late 2018. Um, I do hope they, they update this um, that, that found that 40% of Americans believe that partially on my driving systems have the ability to drive by, uh, by itself that this idea is confounded by the names of these systems, including autopilot, ProPilot, and pilot assist. It's interesting that pilot is the common thread there. Now, again, I don't know the methodology of all this or whatever, but right. um, do you think, can, can, can the name of a system, is, is that a legitimate, is that, is that a form of autonomous washing? And if so, where's, where should the line be? How, how do you draw a line? Yeah, no, the name of the system is definitely a form of autonomous washing, and it is definitely confirmed through peer-reviewed research, that it does affect perceptions of the system. This is a fact. It's been proved, proven over and over again. 
So that's, I think, totally clear. Now, when you say that about uh, these other systems, ProPilot, Copilot, or you didn't say Copilot, you said ProPilot and some other things. Pilot assist, um, yeah. I tend to prefer Copilot over some of the other names you've mentioned. But uh, because Autopilot uh, somewhat predated these systems in, in the sense of its how loud it's been in the media and how much coverage it's gotten. I think it's, it really, there is like an autopilot effect on these other systems that um, it's, it's almost unavoidable at this point that they're going to be uh, riding the tails of, of autopilot in the way people think about the system. So basically (laughs) um, a great analogy is, as the Tesla's stock price, right. You know, increases the interest in, um, and valuation of companies that have don't have a product. The same thing is happening with the term autopilot, where people are tying it or connecting it to any other use of sure. co-pilot or whatever. It's like um, a network effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and the funny thing, the interesting thing about the the German court ruling is, um, and maybe you can tell me this. I mean, as far as I know, it was talking specifically about autopilot. Did they weigh in about a, a more problematic term, which is full self driving? Do you know? Does anyone? Yeah, I didn't see mention of that in the piece, but did they? Did they? They, they yeah. did. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. So the the court website says that uh, terms include uh, uh, autopilot included, and again, these are uh, Google Translate versions of German mm-hmm. German words, uh, which are in turn German interpretations of the original English branding. Uh, autopilot included full potential for autonomous driving, which I think is full self driving, um, or until the end of the year, ellipses, automatic driving in urban areas. So they, they had said that um, there would be automatic driving in, in urban areas uh, by the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. So part of the ruling was that they did not deliver on that and it was therefore misleading and, and therefore hurt competitors who do uh, obey sort of truth and advertising rules. And what mm-hmm. is what is the what are they what is the court's uh, interpretation of advertising? Does that mean just because Tesla doesn't do traditional magazine advertisements and things like that. It's a lot on, on Twitter and also on their own website. Is it just defined like any language that's used on their website when ordering? Do we know that? Um, so, so the examples that they, that they discuss are from the website. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, but sort of the first big thing in Germany, it was, it was a few years back now. Um, but, uh, and I, I think it was, is a KBA um, had sent a letter to every Tesla owner, um, or no, 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 I'm sorry. They sent a letter to Tesla and and were asking them to share sort of all of the communications. And I thought that was really interesting that that they were interested. It, it suggested a, a fairly sophisticated approach to this in that they they think it everything that the company has said about this that a German might have seen, uh, whether it's an advertising, whether whether it's directly sort of direct communication through advertising or the website, or maybe even some peripheral things. I think in, in Tesla's case, it seems pretty clear that, you know, Elon Musk demonstrating, you know, the system in certain ways and talking about it in certain ways um, might not, you know, those, a CEO making those comments might not be held to the same standard in some countries as, as, you know, an advertisement would um, in terms of those truth and advertisement rules. But I think potentially at least there was some understanding that, that you have to look at all of the, you know, the totality of what the company is saying about this system in all contexts to understand how people might be, be viewing it and potentially over-trusting it, right? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I've heard, I think, Elon say before directly that Tesla doesn't advertise. This is a phrase that I've heard before. Yeah. And it's almost like something that's like a, like a I don't know if it's like a bragging right, but his definition of advertising also seems to be different than my definition of advertising. So Right. Right. Earlier, when you were talking about DMS systems, you said there should be, or let me just say, inter- HMI, there should be a standardization of iconography. Um, do you think there should be perhaps even a regulatory standardization of ADAS descriptions? Should everyone be forced into just saying level two or level two plus plus? Or should there be some, any kind of commonality? I think there have been at this point so many suggestions. There are also different um, uh, ISO standards that are in development and looking at things like this. So, um, I mean, the real question is: is uh, 
enforcement and approval in the end state, like before this thing goes into production, that, that's, you know, is this actually going to be something that's enforced at the end? Because sometimes you'll have, you know, suppliers working on a system and then later on it's changed by, you know, it's given these different bells and whistles, branded bells and whistles by, um, you know, the OEMs. So it's sort of something that uh, it, it's, it's just, you know, here are the standards, here are the suggestions, but like what happens when we don't obey them? Like, is, is there an actual consequence? I mean, you buy a, a motorcycle helmet, or even a bicycle helmet, it has to meet, there's two standards. Right. Um, and for shock, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, clearly well related to safety. And it seems as if maybe there should be, when you go to a restaurant, at least in some states, it has a restaurant rating, like ABCD. Mm-hmm. Is there like an additional layer of classification or safety or a, a cognition menu of like that perhaps might be created? I think what you're touching on is important and is it's possible, but there again, yeah, there are certain limitations here because these to get to gain that level of consensus in this industry, I think is really difficult to do. Um, an industry that relies so heavily on uh, branding and so many levels of of uh, of the vehicle uh, and you know the broader brand uh, identity that I think it's it's really a challenge. Um, but I agree. I mean, if everybody everybody knows red means stop or danger, yeah, this is clear. Green means go. We're good. You know, these types of things are always really valuable, especially when you're in a safety critical setting and you need to make decisions really quickly. Do you, getting back to what what Alex was sort of discussing earlier about sort of um, in vehicle education in these systems, like do you think that 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 if if someone were to really and 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 obviously it's really hard to teach, you know, to even just communicating like where the level of performance is, you mm-hmm. know, where it stops and where it ends and, 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 and then trying to communicate how you should calibrate your trust to that. I mean, these are very, very difficult things to, to communicate, but yes, if there were some way to do it, that, that mm-hmm. really, really worked, would that make a tonic, a ton of washing, a ton of casting, a ton of washing less of a problem because, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because then, then the training that you would have would sort of supersede maybe some other conflicting stuff that you'd heard. Certainly that would help to mitigate its effects. There's no question. Um, there's also been studies done about uh, where consumers would like to be educated about their vehicles. And kind of what we found out is uh even at the dealership level, there aren't really good um, standards for or, or procedures for educating uh, new customers about the technology. And the thing is, the customers are coming in and they don't even know what questions to ask about the technology because there's such an, like a, a knowledge gap here. Um, and uh, I think in some ways, so, so, you know, car dealerships are changing a lot, obviously. Um, but in some ways, if you are going to have a physical dealership where people are coming into your uh, location to interact with your brand, I do think it's sort of a missed branding opportunity to focus on these uh, pieces of technology that are in the vehicle and offer the customer some kind of like introductory experience. I just think that that's something that would benefit um, both the yeah the branding aspect the, for the maker and also on the, the cons- customer's side. Um, yeah, improve their interactions, no question. Like maybe even a, a simulator in the showroom or something. Sure, yeah, it's been suggested. I think um, in the paper I mentioned something about VR or um, even like, yeah, like you said, like a simulator, almost like, these, you know, these video games that you see in an arcade where you have the screens all around you and you can sit inside and, um, you know, have the Mercedes-Benz experience sort of an automation. Like that would be really cool, I think. I think people would be, it, it, would, it would definitely start a dialogue. Yeah. Have you... Uh, researched the um the different driver education systems in different countries no yeah and would i mean do you think that, i mean do you think that there's um uh long-term some an opportunity to use say driving games um as a form of driver education given the popularity of platforms like forza motorsport or gran turismo um I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's, it's an option. We can, you know, it's something that you could uh, try out, like test and see how it goes with people. But I think um, the issue is, I think that there's, there's, 
because these ideas about the technology, the way that people are going to be interacting with it are just, they, they're formulated so far even ahead of that point that I feel like I really wish that there was some more um, public awareness campaigns about this. Like when I was a kid, I remember watching, you know, ad, can- ad-, ad council advertisements on television or Smokey the Bear about <laughs> forest fires. And I don't see anything... Um, related to automotive. I think the last time I saw something like this, you know, there were big texting and driving campaigns, but I'd really like to see something about like, you know, partial automation is on road. You have to pay attention at all times. I would be curious to see if the industry would support that and which companies within the industry would be supportive of that. That would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we haven't really talked about operational design domain limits. Um, and so in the NTSB investigations of a couple of the, the Tesla crashes that where overtrust in the system was one of the big things they called out. Um, you know, lack of driver monitoring and lack of, of, of hard operational design domain limits uh, uh, were part of that equation. And it, it makes sense that those things uh, either communicate the limitations of the technology or just force you to operate within that. And you, you might almost not need trust if you have some of those things. I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. But then also, like, do you and, and you know, I think we all know that, that more and more ADAS is coming uh, uh, to more and more cars at, at, at more and more price points over the next you know coming years, um, is there a concern? Because because it seems like in in some ways not communicating the limitations of autopilot has made it more popular. Um, and and people say you know oh I hate Super Cruise because I just can't use it right. when I want to or or things like that. So um, is uh, you know are are you afraid that that the incentives are such that that actually more we might see more autonomous washing in the future, uh, or or more sort of unsafe, you know, uh, uh, ADAS uh, just just because of, of how those incentives are structured. Yeah, you touch on a lot of really important things there. So as far as the operational design domain, you know, when you're talking about partial automation, this is just not something that's really designed to be used in an urban setting. Certainly, um, these systems allow you to activate it at low speeds. That is a, a conscious decision, and that's that's what we're dealing with. Um, whether or not it should be that way, uh, yeah, maybe it's open for debate. I think it's a it's definitely a, a risk and a liability that's that's taken on. Um, and um, I'm trying to remember the second part of your question. Uh, just um, whether yeah, whether you know if you if you don't communicate the limitations of the system, right, it seems yes. more capable. Therefore, it seems more yeah. advanced, and therefore right. people want it right. more. Right. So I think it's it's actually like a fair question to ask. Like, I don't know the answer to this, but I do wonder sometimes about like the, the full, like if your auto company is going to be the autonomous washer in chief, like what are the benefits that you're going to see from this? So I think in the case of Tesla, for example, um, they are gathering a lot of data with their vehicles on the road. And so if you have people that are um, tending to be more trusting, tending to believe in the system and have this, you know, faith that they are doing something good for humanity by testing it, by turning it on, by all of these things that are built up over time. If you, you have more activations, you're going to get more data. The quality of the data is in question. But if you're, you're encouraging people to turn this on, to use this thing, this does down the chain benefit the company and in, in, uh, another way. So I think it's, it's a fair question to, to ask, yeah, when you just think like, okay, how does a ton of washing benefit Tesla as a whole? Well, they get a, maybe they get extra activations, they get more data, they get more, you know, training. So I more sales, yeah, more sales. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that do you think that there will be a reckoning for this, or do you think this is something that can kind of keep keep going? I mean, it's it's already gone on pretty long. I mean, a little longer than than I might have expected, but. Yeah, it has gone on a long time. It's definitely, um, if the reckoning's com- coming, I would already say it's overdue. Um, but I think, you know, I don't know. It, I think it so much of, of what we're talking about fits into this large, larger puzzle of our society and the way we live today and consequences and the lack of enforcement of certain rules. I mean, you just see it all the time with, with different tweets and different topics and different areas. I just, reckoning is something that, I don't know. It's almost like you can't wait around for it these days. Like you can hope and you can, you can point out what you think is unjust or unfair, but you really, I don't know. Time will tell. Uh, Do you think that there is a 
one-to-one correlation between the practice of Atana washing and um, electrification. Like electro washing is literally the exact same problem, is it not? Electro washing, as in making EVs seem more more usable, more feasible, or hybrids appear to be EVs. So when a company comes oh, okay. out and says we've electrified yeah. our whole fleet, and yet there's only two pure battery electric vehicles. In. Yeah, I would just throw that back into greenwashing. Yeah, right. I think this is yeah, yeah, just part of part of that broader problem that they're facing too. Which again, like greenwashing, you know, undermines real progress, real movement towards the goal that it appears to represent. And that's exactly what autonomy washing is doing. That's why, like I said, it's anti-autonomy because it's not getting us closer to safe, usable um, autonomy. That's our tweetable look for this episode is what Liza <laughs> just said. Um, I also want to bring up the fact that one of the issues that we're seeing now playing out on Twitter, but I've seen happen a lot, is that, you know, the gaslighting that goes along with um, when people push back against claims that companies are making. And in the case of like, let's say Elon in this case, rationalizing something in a way and twisting it so that it is a, it is more believable and sort of then turns everything against what is actually the reality. Um, And I'm seeing that quite a bit in sort of, you know, particularly on Twitter and not just coming from like a CEO of like Elon, but mm-hmm. for example, yeah. every vehicle, every story that I write about Tesla in regards to FSD or autopilot, I always put a sentence in there or a graph in there um, that provides some history. Like autopilot is standard. This is what FSD is. Tesla is not a self-driving car. It requires human engagement, blah, blah, blah. I think that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I always get pushback from that. Mm-hmm. You know, just typical troll type stuff. But I think I, one of the issues is, is that when people do speak out and say, no, this is the reality of it, there's almost an instantaneous response um, that tries to psychologically like twist an argument and make mm-hmm. it seem as if uh, the, the robustness of a system is, is greater than it actually is. I'm sure you've experienced that as well. But I mean, to me, that's almost as big of a problem because it's people basically putting together an argument to meet their own, you know, desires. And yeah. And I think like when you say that you have to look at, okay, why is this happening in the first place? Like why is someone gaslighting, twisting and, you know, making other people doubt their own realities? And this is because usually control and power. So they're seeking power seeking, uh, that's a power seeking behavior. So when that's being done, and then you're rallying people around you to then therefore turn to you, look to you for the truth. And then you have this other actor come in that, you know, you don't have this tie to, to tell you what to believe, to tell you what to know you're there, you are ripe to be, um, the punching bag or to be, um, to be questioned. And yeah, it's definitely something that is, uh, when, when you go up against a um, a certain ideology that is the belief of what, in the case of Tesla, what Tesla stands for, what the mission of Tesla is is trying to what what they're trying to do, um, yeah, you're you're setting yourself up for a, a rough ride, and I think that's why sometimes there's not more people saying something, but you know. Do you do you get much troll? Uh, action. I mean, almost everybody who's been critical of Tesla has gotten some. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I think to some degree, for the most part, I just ignore them because I mean, there's just all a lot of the times, um, you know, I'll, I'll post something about just questioning something that Tesla is doing, and I will get a reply that is basically not related to the topic, but related to something else to just basically, you know, squirrel, just detra- distract, look over there and make an argument about something else that, you know, everybody, of course, believes to be true. So these, a lot of the times it's just a distraction campaign and I generally try not to engage. Yeah. That's, I, I wish I had your maturity about that. <laughs> I think that is a, the perfect uh, sage advice to end the podcast, which is, Alex and Ed take Liza's advice and don't engage on Twitter. <laughs> uh, let me just say, this has been one of the most interesting and educational episodes of Atonicast. And uh, I would love to have you back at some point in the future. 
Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. That's really nice. And I think my, my ability to deflect trolls has something to do with being a woman on the internet. You learn different things uh, a little quicker because you have to. Um, so yeah, I can give you some wisdom on that. <laughs> Don't worry. They, they won't, they won't take your advice. Because I've tried <laughs> before. Like to learn more about your thoughts on any of this. Mm-hmm. What would be the best place for them to go looking on the internet? Yeah, they can always tweet me. I'm at Liza Dixon, so L-I-Z-A-D-I-X-O-N on Twitter. And uh, I'm always there, ready to answer questions. I really love questions because sometimes, you know, I get something I haven't thought of. It's always a new opportunity to look look something up, learn something. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy the dialogue there. Yeah. And I wanted to just, um, before we go, echo sort of what Alex said and and say in particular that, you know, I'm I'm very... uh, Proud to have uh, your ton of washing paper on our resources section uh, at pavecampaign.org. Um, I think it is a really a really important um, tool. I mean, the, the academic research is is a huge part of this. It's, it's the foundation on which we all learn. But someone has to come in and and, and popularize that. Um, and that's sort of in a way it's what it's what we need to do. So I will tell you that uh, your paper is is an inspiration genuinely because oh, um, to be able to take such complex stuff and, and to make it so approachable and understandable, uh, it, it takes real insight. So uh, thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Kirsten? Oh, uh, well, at first I thought I, you were going to say the resources page of the Atonicast and I was all excited. And then it turns out that it was for your actual job. And then I was disappointed. So yeah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Life, I life think I, I think I said my closing, which was, you know, and, and then you guys just continued the string. So, Liza, yeah. thank you so much for coming on to the show. You're welcome back anytime. And stay tuned, audience, for the next episode of the Atonicast. Thanks, Kirsten. Thank you.